Welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, the fiercely nonpartisan discussion that seeks policy solutions to issues of the day. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. We've all heard about infrastructure, the need to upgrade our roads, our bridges, our railroads. Uh, in my, close to my heart, computer systems, airports, tunnels, dams, locks, energy, basic utilities, communications, internet access, water and waste handling system, and more. And today on the Common Bridge, we have a guest, Professor Rick Geddes from Cornell University. Dr. Geddes is a professor in the Department of Policy Analysis and Management. He's also the founding director of the Cornell Program in Infrastructure Policy. We will put links to those up on our website, richardhelpy.com. He's a member, graduate fields of systems engineering, economic, and public affairs. As a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, we could not have a more qualified person. Dr. Gates, welcome to the Common Bridge, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for inviting me, Rich. Great to be on. Dr. Gettys, we all like to give our listeners some understanding of the people that are coming on. So, you know, you and I, before going on, understand that your family heritage actually includes infrastructure. But can you talk to us maybe a little bit about that, a little bit about your early days and maybe your academic work and maybe what you're up to today professionally? Sure. I'm happy to chat about that, Rich. So my training formally is, is actually in economics. And I received my doctorate in 1991 from the University of Chicago in economics, and I taught at Fordham University in the Bronx in the economics department for 10 years. But I've always been interested, Rich, in net network industries and regulation of industries. My dissertation was about the, the regulation of the electric utility industry and how that's uh, changed over time. I was also uh, did a, a number of research papers on the U.S. Postal Service. Uh, which is kind of a niche area of uh, industry regulation. But I always had this interest in the interaction between government and the marketplace and how the uh, government regulation addresses certain industries that have these network characteristics. Uh, water systems are highly networked. Uh, electric power systems are highly networked with strong physical interconnections between the component parts of the network. And that always fascinated me. Uh, and then I was introduced to this whole world, Rich, of, of infrastructure policy by serving at, uh, on the Council of Economic Advisors in the White House. And that's in the 0405 academic year. I was what's called a senior economist. Congress was passing a bill at that time, which is uh, uh, what they're going to have to do soon. Uh, reauthorization of highway spending is a huge issue in Congress. Every time you buy a gallon of gas, Rich, it's 18.4 cents that goes to the federal government mm. from each gallon. Right. If it's diesel fuel, Rich, it's 24.4 cents. But you can imagine every gallon right, that American uh, drivers and, and truckers are using, some of that is going from that state to, into this fund. And every now and then, every four or five years, Congress has to reauthorize spending out of that federal highway fund, which also includes a transit account, by the way. So there's transit spending in there as well. But normally in those bills, Rich, Congress includes policy changes, okay? And I was the micro regulatory microeconomist in the executive branch that was 
asked, you know, this is President George W. Bush, uh, asked to deal with a number of policy issues that the executive was trying to work out with Congress. And uh, the, the analogy is being squirted in the face with a fire hose because you're being <laughs> uh, confronted with a whole set of policy issues, environmental permitting reform, road tolling, public-private partnerships, um, a whole set of policy things that you've never seen before, and you have to quickly learn about that. And it was fascinating for me to learn about this whole new world uh, where policy can be applied to, to infrastructure. As a result of that, so <laughs> Congress created two study commissions in that bill that was called Safety Lou of, I think, 2005. Uh, President George W. Bush appointed me to one of those commissions. I won't go into the gory details, but it was called the National Surface Transportation Policy and Revenue Study Commission. And Congress wanted to kind of get advice from a group of experts, the commissioners, as to how to reorient the Federal Highway uh, Trust Fund, given that the, the interstate highway system was basically complete. Right. So so the reason that uh, there was a gas tax before but President Eisenhower greatly increased the the amount, the scale of the federal gas tax and diesel tax to pay for the design and construction of the interstate highway system. Well, by by that time, you know, oh four oh five, the the system was largely complete, and Congress wanted to reorient that the mission of that. So we we were you know funding uh, and policy. We reported to Congress in two thousand eight. Um, I thought it was a great final commission report. It's called transportation for tomorrow. You can look at our final report, Rich, but you might recall that some other big policy things occurred in 2008, like the implosion of the global financial system. And that yes. kind of- <laughs> Not gonna forget that. Not gonna report. forget that at all. <laughs> no, you might remember that, right? How close we came to the edge. Yes, indeed. You know, but heaven, thank heavens we didn't go over the edge, you know, the way we did during the Great Depression and people at the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, et cetera, deserve a tremendous amount of credit for keeping us you know, the, the system functioning, but of course it pushed uh, infrastructure issues to the back burner. Nevertheless, I, I was introduced again to a, through the commission, a whole set of, of issues in even more depth that are critical, you know, to the country. And I realized that my profession of economics uh, really was not focused on infrastructure, transportation, energy quite in the way it had been in the past. It's gone off in a very theoretical uh, direction in some cases, but that there was scope for, for research, teaching, and public engagement on the whole set of infrastructure policy issues, Rich, that are now, I think, front and center in, in, the, in the public's mind. And that's great. So I came back to Cornell, you know, I was continued to teach at Cornell, but I realized at Cornell University, it's a very big university. There's uh, people doing different things. It's both a public and a private university uh, together, but with tremendous expertise in infrastructure. And infrastructure could be sensors. It could be civil engineering. It could be design. It could be structures. It could be uh, environmental impacts. It could be funding and financing. It is a whole set of things, but that the expertise at Cornell was not coordinated. There, there was not a, you know, coordinated center just addressing this whole set of infrastructure policy problems. So back in 2012, I founded CPIP, or the Cornell Program in Infrastructure Policy, and I urge the listeners to just check out our website at C C Google CPIP Cornell, and you'll find our, our effort. And it's really taken off since then, Rich. So we have 
26 faculty affiliates just within Cornell. We have a, uh, the premier industry advisory board. I'm very proud of that. Over 40 members of the industry, and that's investors, that's design companies, toll road operating companies, construction companies, law firms, on down the list that are involved in this whole network of, of, of firms and industries, really, that you need to deliver heavy civil and social infrastructure. As I've read up on that Cornell program that you've got. This goes way beyond Cornell. This goes internationally. Right. And we all have an interest in infrastructure because we're all trying to drive on roads. We're all trying to make sure that we have appropriate sanitation, all these things that are, are common. And, and I really want to get into where we stand today and what some of the mm-hmm. policy ideas are going sure. forward. We could speculate a little bit about what might happen if there's differences in regions among countries and such. So, right. you know, when when people talk about infrastructure, is that a universal definition or do people have different definitions of what's inside the infrastructure box and what's outside the infrastructure box? Yeah. So Chris, that's actually one of our missions at CPIP. Uh, one of the things I encountered and one of the reasons I formed this center is, is because the glossary, in some sense, just the vocabulary is, is sometimes uh, confused. Let's just say it like, like basic things. What, it, what is infrastructure? What is the funding of infrastructure versus the financing of infrastructure? That's one, one of the big hobby horses that I get on. Um, so so what, one thing we've tried to do is to be very careful about the definition of infrastructure. So the internet, right, that we're using now, mm-hmm is some people say, well, that's, you know, that's infrastructure. So we've tried to be careful. What we're focused on, Rich, is the delivery. Now, when I use the term delivery, I mean the whole set of activities that has to happen before the the public, the, the end user can enjoy the benefits of that infrastructure. That's design of the facility, right? It's construction, it's operation, it's maintenance, and finance. it could be financing, how you finance it. It could be how you take it apart, like the old Gothels Bridge in, in the New York metro region. How do you disassemble and recycle those mm-hmm. elements? It was a 90-some year, year old bridge when it's when it's done. When yeah, you look at that's... the demand side of that, are, are we talking more about like revamping what we have, like replacing an aging bridge or dam, or are we yeah. talking about new projects like I don't know, the, the population shift, and now we have a need for a waste system. So is it more sure. revamping or new initiatives? Yeah, great. Let me let me just uh, go back and uh, I'll define the way we talk about infrastructure and then answer your current question. So when we, we're talking about heavy civil and social infrastructure. So heavy civil is is drinking water systems, wastewater treatment systems, airports, toll roads, lambs, uh, dams, levees seaports um, and energy systems as well. So uh, generation of electricity, transmission and distribution of electricity, the grid system, right? Then we, we, we call that heavy civil and we make a distinction, but it's important, Rich, between that, what we call social infrastructure. So social infrastructure, normally standalone facilities, schools, prisons, courthouses, hospitals that deal, that deliver what we normally think of as basic services you need for any civilized society, like criminal justice, education, right, healthcare, those fa- the f- mm-hmm. facilities, right, not not 
you know, what's taught in the classroom are not the doctors, but the hospital building itself. So we, we make a distinction in my field between the civil stand um, networked infrastructure, like a, a drinking water system, a wastewater treatment system. Super networked is, is the transportation system, which is, which is becoming more networked to the transportation system as people drive more electric cars. But, but I want to say those, those are the things we're not talking about the Internet. We might be talking about 5G or broadband, but I want to make a distinction. Now, to your question, Rich, the, the issue, I think, in the United States, particularly the East, is, is not design and construction of new stuff. There's some of that, but the, the majority of the problem, I think the entire United States, has we, we are historically good at building shiny new things, having the ribbon-cutting ceremony. We are really bad at taking care of what we have. You can go to the American Society of Civil Engineers website, deferred maintenance. That's a huge problem is that when state and local governments. So, so Rich, this is largely not a federal problem. The owners of the infrastructure whose title, whose name is on the title is, is a state. The states own the interstate highway system and all the bridges and tunnels associated with that or a city, right? A municipality, sometimes a county. But it's often state and, and municipal, you know, so it's the federal government plays kind of a different role in that they don't own the stuff. They own some military uh, housing, military bases, et cetera. But the civil and the social infrastructure, which is a state and local problem. So I was if you're shocked stuck, this, this yeah. summer when there were bridges failed in, excuse me, dams failed in the state of Michigan. Right. And. Why I learned that? then that it was privately owned, and I thought, well, how could that be? And then yeah. just recently, they closed the Sioux Locks as the last freighter passed through for the season, and they've got a long list of maintenance. And yes. I'm wondering, how did we get into this situation? Right. That's just fascinating. Yes, Rich. So I want to say there's some, some again, back to the vocabulary. <laughs> In my world, we, we use the term brownfield. So brownfield means the renovation of an existing system, right? And system could be any of the, the things I articulated before, or a greenfield. A greenfield is design and construction of something new, right? A, you know, the field is green and you're putting in a section of highway or whatever it is, right? So really, Rich, I think the problem in the United States is the brownfield. In other words, keeping up, renovating, maintaining the infrastructure that, that we already have, like the dam, you know, that you mentioned, right? Now, the question, how did we get here, <laughs> right, is a, good, is a good question. If you're a mayor of a city, you're a county executive, you're a, a governor of a state, it's, and you have a budget crunch, right? It's pretty easy to defer infrastructure maintenance to the next year. Mm -hmm. Even though your civil engineers might jump up and down and scream, you say, well, you know, I want to get reelected and infrastructure maintenance is not a really strong platform to run on. <laughs> and it gets deferred and deferred. And pretty soon we're in exactly the place where we are, Rich. And again, I urge listeners to, to take a look at the American Society of Civil Engineers. They call it their report card. Which, which grades various infrastructure sectors, and we do pretty poorly, right, on that. So, so um, the thing, and how do we get here? Uh, in terms of a delivery sense, right, I, we could get into that. The United States is one of the only countries I know that uses a specific type of, of procurement called design, bid, build. And design, bid, build is where you, you bid out the design, and you, you, the owner, the public sector, pick the design you like, 
And then you bid out the construction separately. Mm -hmm. And guess what you do? You pick the lowest cost construction, right? It's almost designed to do that. In other words, you don't wrap design and construction together in what's called a DB contract. And that has certain advantages. We've been doing it like, I don't know, 50, 60 years that way to get the lowest cost construction. But the problem is you get the lowest cost construction. And then you and then you also use tax exempt municipal bonds. As far as I can tell, Rich, the United States is the only country that has tax exempt, a special tax treatment for infrastructure debt. And a lot of this is financed by debt. And that crowds out taxable uh, privately issued debt, which is means private partners are often crowded out. They use much more public-private partnerships in other other countries. You know, we can talk about that. But I think the net effect of this, Rich, is to defer maintenance, right? Is is that often and Cornell has studies that they've put out, something called the local roads program here, where how much more it costs you if you defer a few years, you can't just do regular maintenance, mm -hmm. you have to tear the whole thing out. It's orders of magnitude, like seven, eight times more expensive. If you defer that maintenance, deferred maintenance, or maintenance is a very, very good investment. And when you defer it, it's very costly. So there's a whole set of forces, Rich, that have come together in the United States uh, in infrastructure to, to defer that maintenance and give us the crumbling you know, infrastructure, depending on the sector, and, the and crumbling think, infrastructure you mentioned. And, and look, I think that plays into the way we govern. Yep. So, for example, most municipalities, states, the federal government have an annual budget. In contrast, one of the most successful counties in America was Oakland County, Michigan, where the county executive, now deceased Elberks Patterson, put in a three-year rolling budget. And so they anticipated shortfall so that they made sure that they met the needs that, that would be coming up. There's also been this hidden discussion around term limits. One of the issues that we've seen around term limits, particularly at the state level, is not only have we lost the institutional knowledge, that there's very little incentive to do something long term. I'm going to be yes. here four years or six years. And when that dam fails, it's going to be on someone else's watch. And yeah. of course, as you were talking about the low bidder, I had to remember Alan Shepard's quote. And for those of you not old enough to remember, uh, <laughs> one of the first uh, American to, uh, to go into space, Alan Shepard mm -hmm. asked him, what were you thinking when you were sitting in that capsule? And he looked at all the switches and lights and things and said, this was built by the low bidder. So, <laughs> nice. so, um, so he got back, which is a good thing. Uh, thank the caps. So afterwards, but uh, that's that's another thing. So yeah. when, I, when I hear about this, that and I had I was unaware of the boundaries about the way different pieces of infrastructure can be set up. And you know, clearly, healthcare services today it's become a public good. We're financing it in the worst way possible. And hopefully we're on a way to fixing that. At least, you know, if the people that are in charge of doing that would listen to the common bridge, they'd hear a lot of really knowledgeable people all coming together. <laughs> and then look, in the early stages of the pandemic, we had states looking for COBOL programmers, which is an ancient language, because right. their unemployment systems were written in that. And frankly, I, I wrote a lot of COBOL code back in the day. And I'm sure yeah. some of those temporary patches that I put in 
are still running right now because that's the way <laughs> very, stable. <laughs> very stable very <laughs> stable yes exactly and today we have apps and we have blockchain so with these boundaries some people would suggest education certainly voting mm-hmm. systems need to mm-hmm. be updated and we've got apps and blockchain who could be against fixing the infrastructure i don't understand mm. that how can this even be partisan how could this even be a controversy <laughs> yeah. it's a great question rich so 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 it, it it boils down to my mind that like nobody's against infrastructure nobody's against proper maintenance or operation of infrastructure everybody's in favor of it <laughs> the question is where's the money going to come from and at cpip you know, one of one of our missions is to make a distinction between funding of the infrastructure and financing. And so the funding is the dollars. It's the underlying dollars. Are they going to come from tolls, user fees of some sort? Is it going to come from a broad based tax like a sales tax or a property tax? And there's in between, Rich, there's things, taxes that could be levied on uh, the the change in property values as a result of installing the infrastructure. And that's that's tax called tax increment financing is another way. It's actually both a funding and a financing source. So my point, Rich, is when you think about fixing the, the country's infrastructure, and I say this because I've seen a lot of confused discussions about it, you have to have a story about where the underlying dollars are going to come from. And that that is kind of sector specific. So there's things like the electric utility grid. As we all know, we get an electric bill, right? So we're users of electricity and we're billed directly for it on a monthly basis. That system works pretty well. But take the, the transportation system, Rich. So what happened was back in the, in the days of President Eisenhower, gas taxes were pretty stable and they were fair. In the sense, you probably remember every four-door sedan got about the same gas mileage, a Buick, an Oldsmobile, a Ford. If you use one lane mile of interstate highway, you used about the same gas mileage. Um, and you got pretty predictable revenues from the gas and diesel tax. Americans since World War II, the, what's called VMT or vehicle miles traveled, was kind of going up in a pretty predictable rate. Uh, for decades, right? And that meant the gas tax revenue was pretty predictable. Things started to change, I guess, after 2008. Um, There's still studies being done of that. But what's happened, Rich, is that the, the gas tax revenues have become, have declined at rates that were faster than people expected them to decline. And they are also less predictable. So what's happened is cars uh, are becoming more fuel efficient. So forget electric cars for a second. Just think of the gasoline engine, uh, federal mandates and other forces were requiring uh, the OEMs, the original equipment manufacturers, to make gas engines more efficient. And guess what? They did it. But what does that do to your gas tax revenue? <laughs> it, it doesn't help it, right? And then if you add to that, it's not indexed to inflation, right? It's it's 18.4 cents per gallon. It's just 18.4 cents. Well, the purchasing power of 18.4 cents has declined by well over a third since it was last increased. And that's 1993. <laughs> okay. Wow. So it's been a while, right? And it's even, we haven't had hyperinflation, but we've had modest inflation since 93. But even with that modest inflation, you still 
get eroding purchasing power, right? And then if you add to that, Rich, so something interesting, right? There's people in the federal government, their job is to forecast the revenues into the Federal Highway Trust Fund from both gasoline and diesel taxes. Those numbers are very important. But the adoption rate for electric cars has been greater than people thought, right? That you know there were predictions because if you drive an electric car, you're paying zero in gas taxes, so you're not paying for the roads. So, so what I'm trying the the, the net effect of all this, Rich, is that the uh, stability and the value of gas taxes as a funding source has eroded over time. And right to, your, to that point, then, if you look at the way this the interconnectivity would be, right? You mentioned the electric grid. And there's yes. always been who's going to pay for it, the ratepayers or the shareholders. Right. So we have right. to just build a new power plant. Right. Of some who's going to pay? Yeah. Who's going to pay? How are we going to fund that? And, you know, to your point that the need is not going to be any less acute. The price tag is going to increase. Yes. Um, you know, we, we talk about tolling with user pay. That impacts lower incomes. And look, just by way of example, when he launched the Iraq war, George W. Bush could have said, we're all going to be in this together and we're going to raise gasoline taxes 50 cents to fund the war. Right. He didn't. Right. When right. the BP oil spill happened in the Gulf of Mexico, President Obama, I thought, had an opportunity to say, we're going to cut our use of gasoline by making it more expensive. But yeah. it's terribly regressive. And yes. trying to tax drivers right now, if you go from the port authority of in New York and New Jersey, every day it costs between $11.75 to $16 per trip. Now, it's a little less for carpools. Right. Not to mention the New York, that gets you just through the bridge or the tunnel. That doesn't talk about the turnpike tolls. And we no. already have income disparity in the country. Trump administration held infrastructure week several times. <laughs> right. You know, they, they uh, and even discounting for the president's very short attention span, that president's very short attention span, he couldn't get Congress to pass any broad plan to right. update this. And I just look at this and say, all right, we've got historically low interest rates. Yes. And there was an idea being floated in 2016 about 50 or 100-year bonds at 1% specifically yes. tagged to infrastructure, and even discounting the massive pork barrel opportunities that would be in there. Why wouldn't borrowing that's specific to start getting after this infrastructure? Yeah. Why yeah. wouldn't that make sense? It does, Rich. I mean, I think, I think we have to focus it. So as I said, there's a tendency to it's still there to focus on, on new things, right? And it's a political, I'm not faulting any individual. I'm, I'm suggesting the incentives created by the system that delivers infrastructure are to focus on the short term. But infrastructure inherently is, needs long-term attention, right? So what I would do, what I'm, we're recommending is, spend, you know, interest rates are low. Congress is, you know, discussing a big spend on infrastructure. But as you do that, Rich, change the way infrastructure is delivered in the United States. Change the procurement contract. Now, you before mentioned that uh, county executive, I think, from, from Michigan. Yes. So, so, so have people like that 
try to try to alter the, the way so that you wrap or bundle or combine design and construction with operation and maintenance. That's actually called a design, build, operate, maintain contract. It's a D-bomb in, <laughs> in my world, full of acronyms, right? But that does some amazing things. For so when you bid out the contract, right, clearly just combine design and construction. Ha, that's what we did on the, the Tappan Zee Bridge replacement, the Mario Cuomo Bridge up north of where I am now, a $5 billion roughly project. New York did it as a design build. Governor Cuomo is very proud of that. Uh, that uh, about the, the type of contract. And I think that's appropriate. What I'm saying, what we're saying is extend that to combine operation and maintenance. So that might be over 20, 25, or even 30 years. So what you're doing is when you do the design and construction contract, and it's not just one firm, these are consortiums of firms that work together through a contract structure, but you sign up basically at the time you build the bridge for the bridge to be appropriately designed in construction. We talk about that as the life cycle uh, asset maintenance. So the bridge is the asset. How are you going to, it's like buying a new car, you know, you wouldn't buy a new car and then say, oh, forget about changing the oil. I'll worry about changing the oil later. Well, guess what's going to happen? Your engine's going to be in trouble, right? So you think about changing the oil when you buy the car. Same thing for a bridge. You contract for the operation and maintenance over decades, but you also budget for that, right? So the point is that the public sector owner, whoever owns the bridge, the tunnel, the toll road, whatever it is, commits to the operation and maintenance over the life cycle. Let That's me, called me. life cycle asset costing. And both of those things are encouraged by a change in procurement. So let I me, say let me play that back to make sure. Let me play that back yeah. to make sure, sure I understand that. Sure. So what we've been doing up to this date is we have been put a bid out for, let's say, a dam. All right, now we're going to put a, a bid out for building the dam. And right. then there's going to be a third function on operating the dam. Right. But instead of breaking that up, it would be, all right, somebody to deliver us a dam for the next, whatever the life cycle is, 45 years. Mm -hmm. And the dam has to meet these performance standards. Right. And you figure out how you're going to charge for that in order to fund that project. And then there, you know, there might be tax supported money put in, yeah. but, but you consortium deliver us and yes. operate and maintain. And you leave us at the end of that 40 year period, you leave us a economically viable, well-maintained piece of infrastructure. Is right. that a good lay description? That is perfect, Rich. And there's actually, um, tur you know, it's the thing you said at the very end about tur turning it back. There's, they're called handback provisions. And they're in the long-term DBOM contract, and the handback provisions say you must give us back this asset, you know, up to these certain engineering standards. And if it's a road, it could be the line paint, it could be the smoothness of the pavement, it could be the depth of the asphalt, it could be this quality of the signs, it could be the drainage. I mean, there's a whole set of very nuts and bolts civil engineering standards, and those are in the handback. So you can't give me my my toll road back a pile of crap, right? Yeah. It has to be, you have to show me that you've maintained it over the past 20 years. And that's that, frankly, Rich, is the way a lot of other countries, developed countries are doing it now. And the United States is really behind the curve. So what I'm saying, yes, spend more money on infrastructure because interest rates are low. We know that. But at the same time, change the way we deliver it into, into a contract type that respects life cycle asset maintenance and life cycle asset costing. 
so that the public sector considers budgets in the operation and maintenance when it builds the the thing, whatever that, it is. That sounds like a brilliant policy because it would it would catapult us out of this, you know, declining maintenance, declining value, declining function right. of the asset. And, and again, I'll look to my background in computer systems. If you know there was a company like IBM or Accenture or any of the big systems integrators that said, "Look, redo the unemployment system for the state of New Jersey so that mm-hmm. you're using blockchain or you're using it's available on an app and it's got this security and such." You could apply that same process, design, build, operate this, and with a handback provision and be able to get a more assured performance versus I'm going to let a contract out for design and then the designers walk away from it. Now, look, I've been to China and their airports are amazing and they're modern and clean and beautiful. Now, their traffic congestion's a mess. That is another issue. But are there other lessons from other countries about this kind of procurement? I'm going to ask a second question, too. Sure. Does legislation have to change in order to get that life cycle type of procurement done? Um, it does. And again, it's it's not a necess- the feds can help. So one of the things the feds could do is reform the NEPA process. And NEPA stands for the National Environmental Policy Act. Back to 1970, and it it um, you know was a well-intentioned act to minimize the environmental impacts of uh, kind of governmental actions, but now it's kind of made its way into a whole bunch of of infrastructure act projects and activities. So it can take <laughs> for the Tappan Zee Bridge. It took longer to get the environmental permits, much longer than it did to build the bridge. <laughs> yeah. So so it tells you how that process has gotten more cumbersome over time. We have some data on that, Rich, uh, for CPIP, and projects regularly take over 10 years uh, to get permitted. So one of the things the feds could do is, is to reform NEPA and, and, and streamline it, right? But most of this is, you know, is, is going to occur at, at the state and local, you know, at the state and local level. One thing that has to happen, Rich, is a lot of states and cities have outdated procurement laws. So their procurement laws were 50, 60, 70 years old, and they were the laws themselves were designed for a much more simple uh, infrastructure system. You know, and and some of these 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 DBOM contracts that I'm talking about require the, the states to update their procurement laws. The other thing, Rich. And again, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years and I've got to meet wonderful people who deliver the country's infrastructure, right? They're state highway people and they're water people, you know, but but they're used to a certain mindset. And when you talk about changing the way heavy civil infrastructure is delivered, they kind of get, you know, get worried because, you know, that could be uh, technology I don't understand and risks I don't understand. So one of the things that can happen are uh, help expertise just and other countries are way I can't emphasize this enough rich leading the United States in in procurement reform right and bring in experts to help the mayor help the county executive help this the governor whoever it is to do these contracts correctly right and also I think um, changing the financing Right. So the current system that we have of tax exempt muni bonds, which is a multi trillion dollar, you know, Wall Street market has tended to discourage these these bundling of contracts that I'm talking about, where the private sector companies have to get together. 
Now they they do this legally under under the the framework of what's called a, a special purpose vehicle. You know, the, all these companies mm-hmm. are cooperating, and that that entity it's they don't own the bridge, right? That that legal entity can issue the financing, right? But you have to have you have to kind of give them oh, the perfect. same tax exemption that tax exempt mini debt. And we have a mechanism for that. That's uh, USDOT does it for transportation. They're called private activity bonds. So me and a lot of other people who are sort of policy wonks in this area are the, the federal, the treasury put a cap on the issue of private activity bonds for an obvious reason. The treasury loses interest income <laughs> if a private issuer issues a tax exempt bond. So, okay. Re, re, reduce that if you want more infrastructure lift that cap and apply it to many more facilities you so know, that you know those are kind of some examples rich it's a, a lot more this, listen to this think about you know look you can't turn on the national news without people talking about private activity bonds or whether nepa needs to be reinformed i mean if we weren't right. talking about those things we might be talking about the former president's tweets or whether or not the yeah. latest investigation was about something real. Of course, I'm being facetious and sarcastic, but I think it's time for us as Americans, frankly, to grow up a little bit, uh, get off the news as entertainment and start thinking about these real things that we need to take care of. And that, to me, that harkens back to the education system. So let's say that we embrace the need to revamp, replace all of our infrastructure. We need to make it more environmentally friendly. It'd be difficult to argue with that. We need it to be more reliable. We need to make sure experts are on top of it. Do we have the civil engineers? Do we have the structural engineers? Do we have the skilled laborers and the welders and the companies to do this? What about supply? Can we get concrete and steel and other raw materials from domestic sources? Yeah. Or have we put so many barriers around young people accessing education or the ability to to mine necessary raw materials that we just can't do it? Is it practical? Even if we could finance it, is it practical to get there? Yeah. So let me push back a little bit, Rich. And we absolutely have the expertise. And this is one of the the things that I find frustrating, but also one of our motivations for forming CPIP at Cornell, is we have the best structural engineers in the world, the best civil engineers, you know, the best environmental, the best robotics, the best material science, the best sensors, right? A lot of this uh, new facilities, uh, the new Tappansee Bridge has, the Mario Cuomo Bridge has several hundred sensors embedded into the bridge. So you can monitor the vibration, the temperature, Mm. the pH, everything of the bridge sending out signals in real time. So there's, you know, it's like space flight. Talk about Alan Shepard. You're monitoring what is the bridge doing in real time? Is, is, you know, is it swaying in a way we don't like? Is it sinking because it's built on muck? There's no bedrock that far north in the Hudson. More muck on the uh, Manhattan side, I would imagine. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I I know there's a rare species of sturgeon up there, but... Uh, but, uh, I was thinking two-legged, but that's a different different story. But but the problem, Rich, is an ancient problem in academic. So so they don't don't interact enough. So the the civil engineering and the uh, robotics people and the materials people aren't talking to the finance people. So I'm an economist. I know 
about funding and financing and where the money comes from. And we need to have a more coordinated, less siloed, and the silos richer across sectors. So the energy people don't talk to the water people enough, and they don't talk to the transportation people enough. And one of our goals with CPIP is to try to be general and break down those barriers because the same policy things about permitting, deferred maintenance, where's the money going to come from? How are you going to finance it once, you know, what financial instruments are you going to use once you have the funding in place are general across those sectors. So I think the United, the United States we absolutely needs to grow up. But we, we need to take this more integrated approach to solve solving these infrastructure problems. And Rich, if you do a multi-billion dollar, whatever, trillion dollar bill using debt financing, okay, I get it. But improve the way we deliver infrastructure. One thing you and I have not discussed, which is a huge problem, is adoption of new technologies. This is not you know speculative technologies. But the state and local infrastructure owners often either don't have the incentives or risk averse, which I understand that, and they don't adopt proven technologies. LED switching sodium uh, 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 streetlights, right? That yellowish glow to LED. That just the LEDs, you get more brightness per kilowatt hour of input, right? So the efficiency is better. You save energy, you get more brightness to the point where. The, the lower electric bills can pay for the installation of the technology, mm -hmm. right? But a lot of owners of that infrastructure are a little unclear on how those contracts work. Another one is methane capture. We did that in the wastewater treatment plant in Ithaca, which was over 100 years old. You have these settling ponds for the solid waste. Well, guess what? They're emitting a ton of methane into the atmosphere. Methane is, is a high-powered gas. So Johnson Controls came in and talked to our public sector folks here, the mayor, and they installed a digester. It's a big white sphere. I jog past it all the time. And it captures the methane and uses that to turn turbines at 120,000 RPMs. Wow. That's fast. Well, the methane's powering that. Guess what you get? Electricity. And so the plant itself powers itself from gases that used to be released into the atmosphere. But the key thing is, Rich, I don't think the city of Ithaca paid hardly anything because Johnson Controls said, well, install the new technology if you just let us share your lower electricity cost. So you, it's a weird financing it's approach, win, but you bond a, against the future savings. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a win all the way around. And you know, you Absolutely. mentioned bridges. There's a new international span that's going to cross the Detroit River. It's called the okay. Gordie Howe International Bridge. Now, while the Mexicans did not pay for the border wall okay. on the southern border, which I'm sure was a surprise to, I think, everybody except maybe one person, um, <laughs> right. that the Gordie Howe Bridge is actually being funded by the Canadians up front. Oh. In, in that 80% of the trade with Canada, which is the United States' largest trading partner, goes yeah. through the three ports in Michigan, and right. most of it goes through Detroit. There's a railway tunnel, there's a vehicle tunnel, and then there's a, an aged bridge called Private. the Ambassador Bridge. Private the bridge, yeah. Private bridge, exactly, which is making three times the revenue of a similarly situated bridge, like from mm -hmm. upstate New York going into Canada. Yeah. And when it gets to the Canadian side, customs is a mile and a half from where the bridge meets the Canadian side. And there's 21 stoplights between the bridge and the 401 up to Toronto. So the Canadians looking at this and going, 
we can fix this right. by having a, a new bridge built that connects to the 401. And then okay. on the U.S. side, that it runs into the interstate system on the Detroit side and onto the two major airports mm. uh, west of Detroit, Detroit Metropolitan and Willow Run. Willow Run, which is commercial grade, World War II era, build all the bombers there and such. And the Canadians are fronting this and the United States is going to pay them back with using yeah. What a brilliant thing that's going to be in terms of yeah. trade. So, Rich, let me say, make one general point that, uh, that's very critical to what, what you just said. So, yeah, there's very interesting funding and financing approaches that are coming about. But one of the things policy people, particularly those with economics training like myself, are pushing for is more user fees. Okay. We like prices, right? And in the, most of the infrastructure for which you pay a direct user fee, water, uh, cell phones, you know, energy works pretty well. It's not perfect, but it's better than where, where you don't. So one of the things, uh, just to make your point general, states are switching from state gas taxes because the states have their own gas and diesel taxes to what they call either, depending on the state, an MBUF, a mileage-based user fee, or a RUC. And a RUC is a road usage charge. And it's interesting, Rich, the leading state is Oregon. And so it's not a new tax. It's not a new tax. It's instead of the old tax. So they get rid of their gas tax and switch to a road usage charge, which is like a couple cents, two or three cents per mile. And there's different ways of administering that. But other states are following that tune. And what that does, Rich, is really important because it divorces the source of power that the car uses, whether it's electricity and they're talking about hydrogen or gasoline or diesel. It divorces that from the charge for the road, right? And economists think that's really good because you have a sustainable rate, right, or fee, you know, that, that's separate from technology and you just charge per lane mile. This My hat is off to the folks in Oregon. They've been at this for over a decade just to make that transition. But other states are taking notice. California, Minnesota, uh, Utah, I think, is is looking into this. Most states out west. So so your general point of of moving to user fees whether you want to call it tolling, you know, we try to try to stay away. That's and that's separate from a congestion price, which we could also talk about is um, is a critical thing. We would like to see that included in a bill right now. There's there's <laughs> when the interstate highway system was built back in President Eisenhower's time, they were terrified of one state tolling trucks from another state that's it inhibits interstate commerce. And they made it illegal or you have to get federal permission to do it. So you have to have some reform in the federal law to allow that. But and to actually encourage that in, through pilot projects, because states are kind of afraid of it, too. But but the bill could include uh, pilot projects and encouragement for states to switch more to user fees, get away from, you know, the, the analogy is um, suppose you, you funded your health care system with a tax on cigarettes. But on the other side, you're trying to discourage the use of cigarettes. Guess what's going to happen to your funding over time? So that's kind of the way it's been with gas taxes, a wonderful mechanism for decades that's now outdated. So we would like to see the whole system switch kind of the way that Oregon is going to a road usage charge or an MBUF. I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, administering it and monitoring it is another matter. 
you know, certainly during the pandemic, we all drove a lot less. But I tell you, I've seen this work in Southern California. We have some freeway systems here where the price is set based on congestion. And you have, so you've got a, a transponder in your car. And as you drive up, you can say, do you want to go in the pay lanes? And the, the, right. the, here, here's your price at the moment. It's $2 to go there or it's $7 to go there yeah. based on that time. Because we do have to balance those policy responses, I would think, with making yep. sure that we're not uh, having a regressive taxation on Absolutely. people that need to get to work or need to get to the doctor or you know want to go visit their family. Professor Geddes, this is fascinating. It's like I want to take your classes, and uh, I <laughs> sure, hope maybe come up, come up maybe, to Ithaca, take a class. We've, we've uh, mm-hmm. stimulated some students to think about rebuilding the United States of America, yeah. and really participating. Has the pandemic changed any thinking or theories or priorities about infrastructure? Mm-hmm. Has this caused anybody to revisit what we ought to be doing, maybe? Rich, enormous effects. Uh, the long-term new new normal, if you will, is hard to predict. But before the pandemic, there was this move it, movement to densify people. So one, one piece of that is called transit-oriented development. And the idea was to have development around transit stations so people would not be using their car and they could just get on you know, the subway or, or the, the transit and they, to densify. And of course, the, the, the instant you know, uh, policy uh, uh, command when COVID came was to de-densify, mm-hmm. was to stay away from other people, get out in the suburbs, you know, don't, don't be in big groups. You know, this, this is bad. So, so all of a sudden it changed 100, the, the policy changed 180 degrees, you know, from density is good to no, no, density is terrible. You know, and so and so the, there was this this movement. So what happened, Rich, is transit systems that includes uh, the New York City subway system, the MTA, the bus systems, hammered right in terms of fare box revenue. They basically shut down BART, you know, really quickly around San Francisco. Well, well, the, those uh, systems are in a crisis situation fiscally now, right? So there's a real question as to what's going to happen when things open up. Right. Are people going to go back to the way they were? Are everybody's become more comfortable with Zoom? Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know I have in a way that I wasn't expecting before. Um, But are people going to going to stay in the suburbs? Are they going to come back to the urban core? You know how all that's going to affect. How is it going to affect driving? Like you just mentioned, Rich, toll road revenue. If you're operating a toll road um, and we could talk a lot about projects around to. like you said, real-time price, uh, various uh, hot lanes, that's high occupancy or toll lanes. Um, how's all that going to shake out? Very speculative. But we know that it, it's going to have a profound effect on infrastructure. The other thing, of course, Rich, we we you know could talk about is broadband, where mm-hmm. the COVID virus has exposed gaps. And, you know, every the history of utilities in the United States, a very interesting history, basically the history of universal service where we want to provide mm-hmm. all households with electricity. Right. We want to provide all households with clean water. We want to, pro- then it was telephones. Right. We want to provide the telephone. Then it was, even before that, it was paved roads. I've studied postal services. The history of the post service is a, a multi-century history of providing postal services to every community. Letters, newspapers, cards, right? So that nobody was cut off. But now we have this in broadband where even 
urban some pockets of urban communities don't have broadband access and then there's a lot of rural so there's going to be all these changes i think as as the country and indeed the world emerges from covid and takes a hard look you know where are the resources uh best spent where are the biggest problems uh do we want to densify again is there going to be another virus and then we're going to you know go through this whole drill again you know so i i don't know but I, are, I think are, all I can say is it's really important. These are hugely important and they are intertwined. And I can think of just two examples. So the semi-rural town that I live in, in Michigan, the ambulance service, there was a debate going on about charging municipalities based on the number of runs they made, which I think is just a horrible idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and it's like, no, we just want to pay for equipment and training because right. we might need that ambulance someday. And when we talk about urbanization versus, you know, more suburban or exurban or rural living, it's going to come down to, do people feel secure? Yes. Are they going to be able to live yes. in their homes peacefully? And that ties into other things like public policing. And we had Sheriff Jerry Clayton on who uh, articulated much of what can go into effective policing. We hope to have him back. And Professor Gettys, we have to have you back because okay. this is a magnificent topic that yeah. affects all of us. So as we wrap up today, you know, what didn't we cover that perhaps we should have, or if there's high points, low points yeah. on, you know, policies like make sure we do this or make sure we don't do that yeah. or any other closing thoughts that you might have, because I know that our listeners and perhaps viewers on the Common Bridge are going to really enjoy this session. Yeah, that's great. So, Rich, the, the note I would leave on that I, I touched on, but is is technology, right? So in economics, technology change is the closest thing we get to a free lunch, <laughs> yes. right? And the United States has been blessed because for, for decades we've had access to clean water. We've had access to reliable electricity and, and travel, you know, uh, mobility. But but our stuff is old, right? But technology allows us to, to leapfrog, right? To get to a new, better place without the public sector owner having to have a lot of extra money. Uh, but, but all these technologies have existed, Rich, in the universities, in the startups, in the labs. They're proven, they're patented. It's just a question of getting them adopted. And I, I could talk for the rest of the afternoon on examples you know, of that in terms of sensors, new materials, methane capture, you know, all, all these types of things that a lot of other countries are doing. I think any serious infrastructure bill, sit down, take a deep breath and figure out how can you encourage state and local asset owners to take that leap and do all these new uh, technologies, which are also much better for the environment. Professor Geddes, I don't think there's been a better articulation of the theme of the common bridge. And that is this, the problems we have today are solvable. The mm -hmm. opportunities of the moment that we can seize are there if we have the will and if we talk about it. We're not getting there through the Republicans. We're not getting there through the Democrats. We, they need to act better. Our news reporting industry has let us down. They need to behave better. But it's very encouraging that we have people like you working on the things that you're doing. I hope that many will listen to you and that some of these wonderful ideas can be put into place. 
I'm so honored that you've come on the Common Bridge today. Thank you. An apt title, too, for your area of specialty. (laughs) I hope that we can have you back as this uh, dialogue unfolds in the country. Thank you so much. Happy to come back. Thank you for inviting me. It was great. Happy to come back. Take care. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post production provided by Stunt 3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.